This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. So here's a question. If you're an anti-war protester in Russia, what do you write on your sign when the word war is illegal? To, to stand in the middle of the street with a small slogan, no war or stop war, and you will get fine or you go to jail for 15 days. Alexandra Arkhipova, who goes by Sasha, is an anthropologist who's been studying protests. She says that after these arrests, someone had an idea, a different sign with no words at all. Just eight asterisks, eight dots. One dot for each letter of no war. Which in Russian is eight symbols, not war. But when Russian authorities caught on to this trend... People who were trying to use these signs, they were also punished. So what about a poster with no words and no dots? Three people who were protesting with a blank piece of paper. Just a piece of blank paper. And they got arrested because Russian repression is evolving very quickly. They are learning. So like every week, their boundaries, their limits are moving further and further. And every time those boundaries shift, it's because someone was trying to feel them out. Yes, to touch these limits, to find this border, and to find if I can get punished for that or not. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. If you've been tuning into the last couple of episodes, you've heard us talking to Russians about how they're trying to communicate or, or failing to communicate their feelings about the war to other Russian speakers. We've talked about the language of jokes and humor, the language of spells and curses and love. Today, the evolving language of protest, how to read the code. That's after this break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the Venture X business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X business card. What's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash VentureXBusiness. Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and t-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor JLL and their podcast, Trends and Insights, the future of commercial real estate. It's gone through some upgrades recently, and it's churning out valuable insights on the industry to help you stay informed. Each week, you'll tap into a global network of commercial real estate professionals and hear about market trends, strategies, and best practices. So broaden your perspective. Subscribe to Trends and Insights, the future of commercial real estate at jll.com slash podcast. This message comes from Wondery. 
with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black history's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with Rough Translation. Sasha never intended to become a political exile. She was actually on a long-awaited winter vacation, heading back home to Russia. When she got off at a layover in Europe and found out the war had broken out, so she never went home. Since then, she's been couch surfing. Yeah, I can't, well, I'm kind of deplaced, uh, deplaced scientist. She's an anthropologist of folklore, though now in her role as a displaced scientist, she's become a liaison for people inside Russia who want to get their message out. Last month, she shared this video. Russian mothers with their children being arrested for showing up at the Ukrainian embassy in Moscow with anti-war signs and flowers. But Sasha has also been tracking less direct forms of anti-war protest. Stuff that if you didn't know how to read it, you might just walk right by. For example, a piece of graffiti that's been popping up on walls in Russian cities shows a line of ballerinas all in a row. It's a reference to Swan Lake. Swan Lake, it's a very popular Russian ballet by Tchaikovsky, and uh, it was extremely popular during the late Soviet times. Swan Lake, though, pops up at key moments of Russian political uncertainty. In 1982, when Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev died, the state-controlled TV did not immediately announce his death. They interrupted their broadcasts with Swan Lake. As a state, TV was planning over and over this body. A stalling tactic, while Soviet leadership decided on a succession plan. And after that successor died, Swan Lake played again. Again, when his successor died. But the one that everyone remembers is the 1991 attempted coup that led to the fall of the Soviet Union. During those days when no one knew what was going on, the TVs played nothing but Swan Lake for days. So, uh, to make my long story short, Swan Lake is a political sign, I wish my leader to be dead, or situation to be changed very soon. So when this graffiti pops up of ballerinas or a group of women post a selfie saying they're waiting 20 years for the ballet... It doesn't mean they're waiting for Bali. And who is the audience for this? I mean, is it expected that those who understand will understand and those who don't will miss it? Or is it expected that everybody will understand but it's coded enough you won't be prosecuted? What's the game? Well, it's a tricky question because, of course, uh, the audience has a good education to understand all these signs. But also, you should imagine that the more complex sign is, the the higher possibility that we will remember it. It's how our brains are working. We see a message we want to decipher. It sticks in our minds. That's the goal, she says. Because every morning in Russian cities, you'll see this army of janitors scrubbing out peace signs or the no-war signs they can find. But they're not told to remove ballerinas. So when people go to work, the ballerinas might still be there in the light of day. Sasha calls this part of a semiotic war, a counter-information campaign. 
You know, after after the Second World War, many Germans were saying, oh, we don't know what was going on in Auschwitz, Dachau, and in the Eastern Territories. Maybe if we know, we will behave, we would behave in another way. But we don't know. We were looking in the different direction. So there's a goal for this semiotic war is not to allow Russians look in the different directions. When Sasha was younger, she says she used to delight in talking to her older friends and relatives about life in the Soviet Union and learning how dissidents spoke in code. It was quite amazing about coded messages, about hidden messages, how you can protest without actual protest. It was an amazing piece of history. And now it's our future. And these codes are now reached for in Russia because of a very Soviet approach by Russian authorities to silence dissent, pitting neighbor against neighbor. For example, there is a nice uh, lady, Maria Petrovna. Maria Petrovna is kind of like the Russian version of Jane Doe. She, she can come to, to police and say, okay, guys, I saw this terrible video which my na- neighbors uh, sent to me. I feel so disappointed. I cannot sleep. I was collapsed. So she's reporting on her neighbor sending a video which was anti-war. Yeah. Now, this video that has harmed her might just be a Western news report about the situation in Ukraine. But that violates a new crime in Russia against spreading so-called fake news. The person who committed this crime, he can say, OK, I just sent this file. I just post this video. It doesn't hurt anybody. So there should be a person who declared to be hurt by this video. That's the point. And in this environment where you don't know what you say will become evidence against you. You need to use a special coded language for that. For example, uh, today is a nice weather. I'm going to have a work in the central together with my passport. Together with my passport. Yeah, and these uh, two words, work and passport, means that you are going to protest and you are expected to be arrested. That's why you are taking a passport with you. How do people learn the coded language? For, for many Russians, it's education that you can get from your family history. For example, there is a very popular phrase now in Russian internet, especially in the first days of war. People were saying any phrases, including two words, scarf uh, and a snuffbox. Like someone will post on social media. Let's toast for scarf and snuffbox. Or... All we need in this situation, it's a scarf and it's no snuff box. Why scarf? Why snuff box? Because there is a popular historical legend that Russian Tsar Pavel was killed by his officers. First, the legend goes, he was strangled with a scarf and then beaten to death with his golden snuff box. And so this mentioning scarf and the snuff box together in one sentence, it's a sign that I want to, <laughs> this is a political situation to be changed quite radically. And then at what point does that become risky or dangerous to, to joke about? I didn't see uh, any court files against people who say something about scarf and snuff box yet. Maybe we will... It happens later. It will happen later. I don't know. The way the trend is going, you think the scarf and snuff box could also become uh, an arrestable offense? Yeah. 
because now they are arresting people for oral conversations. And oral conversations, you mean uh, for something they said to a friend or a neighbor or... Yeah. It never happens since the Soviet times. It's the first time in the new history of Russia that people got, ar- uh, got arrested for oral conversations. They can even prosecute you for writing that you feel ashamed of the war. And people start to be punished for that also. Because it's a discreditation of Russian troops to be ashamed. It's not just your beliefs that are policed. Expressing your feelings can be seen as an act of treason. Part of Sasha's research project is to document expressions of protest. And now that includes people talking about their shame. And the shame now, it's a national emotion. I, I, count, I count in social media, I count how many, many times people wrote, I feel ashamed because of this war or because of Putin. It was almost one million posts. It's a huge number. These are expressions of shame in public posts worldwide. And it's only in the open sources. So I can count messengers, I can count closed posts and so on. Do you process, do you find yourself processing shame? Oh, yes, a lot. Uh, a lot, like a lot. You cannot drink, you cannot eat, you like your shakes, your hands are shaking like it's a, like it after a terrible hangover. But it's not hangover, it's just a war. And it was made in your name. So Sasha says another goal of the ballerinas and other coded protests is to make people inside Russia know that others think and feel like them. That's another goal. Uh, the first goal is to, like, literally to open eyes for Russians uh, to see the situation like it is, that there is a war, that's a wartime, and we are aggressors. It's the, the goal number one. But goal number two is... Uh... Yeah, to, to show that we are majority, not minority, not freaks. One byproduct of this increasingly repressive environment is that Sasha has a lot of people writing to her, to volunteers, researchers. They're people in Russian cities who say they can't risk protesting or even posting something anti-war. That's why I have this huge collection of graffiti. I'm, there's like hundreds of people making pictures of the walls in different cities, and they would collecting jokes and about asking whatever they can. A joke or a piece of graffiti is less universal than a no-war sign. You have to know the culture to understand it. But that may be part of the power. It speaks with the language of us at a time when so much Russian repression seems to be about making an us and them. For example, consider this scene at the border, when someone trying to leave Russia is forced to hand over their phone. And they're checking your phones and trying to find what you're writing, what uh, Telegram channels you were reading, and uh, especially they're checking towards Putin and war. And then usually they will find any information. It means that if you go back, you will be in the middle of trial. So it's a clear sign not come back. Just stay whatever you want to stay. Oh, story went the different way than I thought it was going to go because I thought they were going to stop you at the border and then fine you or arrest you. But in fact, they're saying go and don't come back. Yes, go, but just a protocol exists. Well, that's the thing about it, right? That um, it also, it feels like in a lot of uh, speeches by Putin, there's no room for neutral. You're with, the, you're with the state or you're against the state. You're with us or you're against us. 
Now, in many cities, they uh, ask you to put the letter Z in your social media or on your car. Uh, you ask to support the war in Ukraine. So the, the ideology came into your life like it was in the Soviet times and not even in the like vegetarian Soviet times in the period of in the late years of the Soviet Union, but like in the Stalinist times. Sasha has always admired the creative ways that Soviet dissidents would protest. As an academic, she's devoted herself to documenting the modern instances of that in Russia today both for posterity and for people to realize they're not alone. But she can't shake the feeling that being a researcher in these dark times, cataloging and observing Russian repression, it's like being a dentist for cannibals, someone making a careful examination of the teeth that will consume them. It's quite difficult to, um, to understand the, uh, the value of what I'm doing. Uh, People are actually dying. And I'm counting, I don't know how many people were arrested. I don't know how, how to explain it, but it's like I feel it being myself a traitor every day, every day, every day. Like people are trying to go into rally and they say, why I'm not here, there, why am I here? Are they telling you join us or are they telling you, Sasha, stay where you are? No, 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 no. Everybody is telling, don't be crazy, don't come back, don't come back. You're absolutely crazy. Well, you know, I read about this feeling in, in the literature from the Soviet times many, many times. And now I can feel it, but I can explain it. This feeling that when you're protesting, it's like it's a very easy feeling because you already choose a side. And you doing something very simple and to show your position. And it's like, it's like a way to save your soul. Alexandra Arhipova is a former senior research fellow at the Wilson Center. Her Facebook page and Telegram channels document the language of protest and loyalty in Russia today in real time. If you've enjoyed this interview, I strongly recommend you check them out. We'll have links in the show notes. This interview is part of a series of conversations that we're having with people about the linguistic and cultural front lines of this war. If you have a question or a topic you want us to cover or an interview you suggest we do, send us an email at roughtranslation at npr.org. Today's show was produced by Tessa Paoli and edited by Luis Treas. Our lead producer is Adelina Lancianis. Special thanks to Sana Krasikov. The Rough Translation team includes Justine Yan and Pablo Aguayas. Liana Simstrom is our supervising producer. Bruce Oster is our senior supervising producer. The master choreographers of this Rough Translation Ballet are Neil Carruth, D.D. Skanky, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. John Ellis composed music for our show. Josh Newell mastered the episode. I'm Gregory Warner, back in two weeks with more Rough Translation. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. 
from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture. Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins. And Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.